The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Professor Anton Venden-Hingel, who is at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Hi, Anton. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, welcome, Anton, and thanks so much for joining us. We'd like to start by first having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role as a professor and both the Murmur Project, which is the world's first AI art exhibit space. Sure. So, yeah, I'm Anton van den Hengel. I'm a professor of machine learning at the University of Adelaide in South Australia, but I'm also the director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, which is 130 researchers working largely in computer vision at the University of Adelaide. Computer vision is a part of machine learning, and it's particularly the bit of machine learning that's interested in trying to make computers see in the kinds of ways that humans do. So it's not really trying to replicate human vision, but trying to give machines the kinds of capabilities that humans do. So get the kind of information that humans retrieve out of images. So I've been doing that for a surprisingly long time, more than 20 years now, but have developed this group that is spread over all sorts of applications. You know, we're working in mining, we're working in agriculture, we do some purely online business work as well. You know, the fields in which machine learning is being applied are so varied that we get demands from absolutely everywhere. I had a meeting yesterday about real estate and the day before was talking about fruit and veg. Yeah. Well, you know, we definitely see the broad application of artificial intelligence across many different applications and industries. And of course, our AI Today listeners will definitely be aware of that because that's the whole idea of this podcast, which is to talk about how AI is being used today in real world applications. And I think that's fantastic. And one of the things we talk about are seven patterns of AI, the various different application patterns in which AI is being applied. And recognition is one of those patterns. And it's part of our AI-enabled vision of the future. We also see that AI is being used to enhance the human experience as a whole. It's like the class of problems we're trying to address are these enhancements of our daily lives. Maybe, you know, not necessarily just what businesses are doing or governments or other organizations, but just in our everyday lives. So in what ways do you see AI impacting people's lives? Yeah, I think it's a really critical issue, right? That we are having this debate as a society about AI and its impact and how we all feel about it, when the truth is that it's just off revolutionizing how we live. Everybody is using it all day, every day, whether they recognize it or not. Most of the apps on your phone are based on some kind of machine learning. You know, the obvious ones that people point to are Facebook and Google, you know, if you're, if you're searching anything on Google, then they're using machine learning to bring you back the information you need and your Facebook use it to choose from the effectively infinite number of stories they could show you to pick the ones that you're absolutely interested in. But the web shopping channels are using it to identify the products that you might be interested in buying, given that they've got also you know, effectively an infinite variety of things you could buy. So it impacts the way that we live 
continuously and people seem to be largely well i don't want to say ignorant to it but you know they're joined up in this kind of revolution happily and without any uh, real recognition that that's what's going on and i'm particularly interested in that fact given the some of the debate that i also wind up in so for my sins i wind up on the technical side of a bunch of these debates about the ethics of ai and its application in all sorts of places and the bit of that debate that seems to be missing is the fact that almost everybody has joined the AI revolution already. They may not realize it, but they're in and they're benefiting from it. And nobody wants to go back. So you know, one of the debates that we see regularly is, you know, we, we should be more inclusive or we should be more explicit or I don't know, there's all of these bits and pieces that people come up with because if we're not then people won't use these services. And I'm afraid that ship has sailed. People are using these services right now and really enjoying the benefits. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you talk about that because I think that sometimes the AI is built in in such a seamless way that people don't realize that there's AI going on behind the scenes. You know, like if you're unlocking your phone with your face, for example, it's just such a seamless experience that I think on a regular basis, most people aren't regularly thinking about that. And so you're right. It's kind of everywhere that we see. So also what's very interesting is that Ron and I have seen a lot of activity around artificial intelligence coming out of Australia. We regularly run trainings. We run them online and we have attendees in just about every single class from Australia. And so it's really interesting. What do you think are some of the factors that come into play to have such a vibrant community down in Australia around AI? Yeah, I agree. I think Australia does punch above its weight and you can see it in the stats. If you look at the top 10 groups in most of the subfields in AI, so natural language processing, computer vision, this sort of thing, the Australian groups are overrepresented, particularly in the publication statistics. And if you go through the major companies in the area, like if you know, you talk to people at Google, Apple, Microsoft, that sort of thing, then you meet a lot of Australians, a surprising number of Australians, actually. And I think that it's because Australia is actually a very wealthy country. It's not how we define ourselves. It's not how people see us from overseas. But actually, Australia is a very wealthy country that has a good education system that's you know largely publicly funded and accessible. And so it's not just in AI. So we do very well in quantum physics and in genetics and in a bunch of these kinds of applications that are right on the bleeding edge, partly because it's so accessible. I think it's a very interesting phenomenon. And just to tell you the truth, I think it's something that more Australians should know about. You know, Australia kind of defines itself internally as this robust nation of horse-riding cowboys, really. And the truth is that we're a sophisticated nation of, uh, you know, of scientific achievers. Yeah, I mean, we've been really very impressed. As Kathleen mentioned, you know, a lot of these folks who are coming out to our training are have some real world situations, real world applications, which are quite advanced. You know, for example, taking driver's licenses and converting them to mobile format and doing image recognition there, or some of the other sorts of applications for classifying documents and doing some other things, which are really pretty much leading around the world. Working at a university, you obviously get the opportunity to see many research projects which are ahead of the industry in terms of application. So, you know, what's one AI technology that you're most excited to see 
become mainstream in the coming years that you might have some visibility on with your research background? Yeah. I, so th- I, to tell you the truth, there's so many and they're not the ones that you might expect. I'm not so enthusiastic about driverless cars. I, I actually quite like driving my own car. I'm very happy for the roads to get safer and all of that sort of thing. But what I really want is a robot that will bring me a spoon. So uh, I've been making the case for a long time that robots, uh, you, know, you, you buy a robot at the moment and it either welds or sweeps the floor. But your welding robot can't sweep the floor and your sweeping robot can't weld. What I want is a robot that will do what I tell it to. And people, I think, have underestimated the impact of the natural language processing that's going into the Google Home and Alexa kind of devices. The next step in that direction is a technology that I've been working in for a while, which is called vision and language navigation. But the idea is that you can give a robot a general instruction and that it will follow it. So, and that's where this bring me a spoon comes in. So I want a robot that I can say to bring me a spoon and I've got some chance that a spoon will come back. But where we stand at the moment, you can ask a five-year-old to bring you a spoon and you've got a fair chance of a spoon coming back to you. But if you ask any robot in the world to bring you a spoon, you've got absolutely no chance at all. And you know, if you ask the old school roboticists, then the challenge is that spoons are shiny, slippery things that are very hard to pick up. The real challenge, I think, is that a five-year-old knows that spoons live in drawers and drawers come in stacks. Spoons are in the top drawer of that stack. The stack lives in a kitchen. Kitchens are big, shiny rooms that are connected to the rest of the house, either by a gap or a doorway to a hallway. And so, you know, I can take a five-year-old to your house. They've never been there before. Give them five minutes and there's a fair chance that a spoon will come back because of all of this kind of embodied knowledge that they've picked up without realizing it about where things are, how they work. So it's a kind of realization that came to me when I was up a ladder painting the ceiling of my house. I said to my 10-year-old, can you bring me the paintbrush that's on top of the green paint can on the workbench in the tool room? And I was thinking to myself, you know, that only works because I know that my 10-year-old knows where the tool room is, knows what a workbench is, knows what a paint can is, and knows what a paintbrush is and can join the dots of those things. And if he comes back and says, I can't find it, then I've got to, you know, I can think through his thought process and say, well, actually, you should just go and look again. Cause, you know, we all know that 10 year olds aren't very good at looking for things. And, you know, we're still a fair way from that level of robotic engagement, but it's coming very quickly. And I think it'll make a big difference. You know, it's kind of the Jetsons, you know, it's the promise the Jetsons made to us in the sixties that we'd have these general purpose robotics. And it's the natural language processing behind Alexa and the kind of Google Homes that has really brought this a lot closer to being reality than it has been, you know, well, since the 60s. Yeah, you know, it's something we talk about a lot. This past year and the year before, we did a benchmark on the voice assistants to see how intelligent 
these voice assistant devices are. You know, the Amazon Alexa and Apple Siri and Microsoft Cortana and Google Home, the Google Assistant. And we knew that we're not actually really testing the devices themselves. We're really testing the cloud-based backend to see how intelligent they are in understanding the questions that are being posed and formulating an intelligent response. And we put together over 140 questions, just 12 categories. And while the voice assistants got marginally better year over year, they still perform really poorly. We were surprised, you know, asking a device how long you should put a turkey in the oven for a 14-pound turkey or something like that, or maybe for our international friends who aren't used to putting turkeys in ovens, things like, should you wash a wool sweater or various different questions that, you know, a typical person would understand. A lot of these devices, surprisingly, were very incapable of handling. And, you know, you think about the ways in which these devices are being increasingly used in, in vehicles and in homes, and you're wanting them to be intelligent. And for some of it, this, this represents a gap in sort of where we are with AI research. We know how to do machine learning, which represents, you know, learning from experience, but we haven't quite figured out machine reasoning and how to tie concepts together. I mean, have you been looking into this seemingly much more complicated area where traditional machine learning may not actually give us that much guidance in how to solve those problems? Yeah, indeed. So I agree completely with your analysis. So I'm very interested in visual question answering. So visual question answering is a bit of computer vision where you give the agent an image it's never seen before and you ask it a question it's never seen before. So it's very different to normal computer vision where somebody decides what the question is and it's static and then you go and try to solve that question. Right? So somebody decides we're going to segment cows from images and then you get a whole lot of cow images and you train the system up and you wind up with something six months later that solves that segmentation problem. Visual question answering is the opposite because you still do all of the development, you do all the training, you come up with a method, and then you ask it the question. So it's kind of like the visual version of what Siri and Alexa and Google Home are doing. And yeah. and I'm really, the bit of that process that I'm most interested in is how you bring reasoning into it. So deep learning's caused a revolution in computer vision particularly, but in a, you know, a wide variety of areas in machine learning. And how deep learning works at the kind of top level is that it takes a signal and maps it to a symbol. And that process has been incredibly effective. So we're at the point now where pretty much anything that a human can do in under a second, deep learning can do better. But where deep learning fails is to do the kinds of reasoning that you're talking about. So you can't bring into that kind of that associative process that the deep learning runs any of this other information about where spoons live or how to wash a sweater or how long turkeys need to be cooked for. And particularly not if it changes, right? If you want to reason about who's the president or what the weather is today or that sort of thing, there's no way to put that into the process, into this deep learning process, because the way deep learning absorbs information is to have it trained in, and that makes the information static. So I'm very interested in how you bring all of the existing reasoning tools, you know, the AI has a fantastic history of these reasoning processes and methods for dealing with information and how you join those with this instant 
deep learning process that's done so well at the associative part of the problem. So I'm trying not to say associative. What, what associative means is only that it's associating a signal with a symbol. So and it all it's doing is mapping from signals to symbols, which sounds like a very easy process, but is actually very difficult. One of the challenges I'm afraid that we face in computer vision particularly is that humans do this stuff without having to think about it. So humans do that mapping from signals to symbols almost instantly and without having to think about it. So if I show you an image that's got a face in it, then your brain identifies the face and identifies the gender of the person associated with it almost instantly, like really surprisingly quickly. And you can't turn it off. And even writing, right? it's more interesting that if I show you a piece of paper with a writing on it, that you will instantly turn that writing into information, even though you didn't evolve to do it, right? We evolved to recognize faces, but we didn't evolve to read. And we have trained our brains to the point where you can't help but turn text into information. And it turns out, actually, that a lot of these things are quite difficult to train a computer to do. And it continually underwhelms people when we achieve these amazing feats because humans achieve them so easily. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think that sometimes there are certain things that seem so easy, you know, to humans. Like you said, a five-year-old, go get a spoon. And you're like, okay, go get a spoon. But all the things that need to map so that they know where a spoon is and what room it's located in and what drawer it's typically located in, all of that knowledge that humans have that you need to actually teach the machine because they don't know that. It's interesting what seems easy and what actually is not easy in practice. I wanted to go back to my first question, though, to talk a little bit more about the Murmur Project, because it's the world's first AI art exhibit space. You know, for our listeners that aren't familiar with it, maybe you can give a quick background about what it is and also why you created it, because I think that art is something that everybody can understand and is familiar with. So it's a really easy entry point into getting comfortable with AI. So I'd love to hear more about that project. Sure. I'm really enthusiastic about the Murmur project. It comes out of the realization, really, that machine learning is changing our lives. You know, AI is fundamentally changing the way we live. Nobody wants to go back to a, a time that's pre-Google or pre-Facebook or pre-Alexa, really. And yet, one of the areas that's been left behind is art. So, there's a bit of art about AI, and I'm afraid I uh, characterize those as pictures of the Terminator because there is this kind of thread of apocalyptic stuff about how the singularity is coming and we're all going to be taken over by our robot overlords. I'm afraid anybody who works in AI or robotics will tell you that that is a gross overestimation of our uh, capabilities, right? The Terminator is not coming, and the, you know, our capacity to generate robot overlords has been massively overestimated, I'm afraid. So in order to try to inspire a more informed debate, but also really to give artists the benefit of the power that AI brings to expression, we had this idea that we should try to bring the two together, right? So AI has changed the things you can say online, right? It's made everybody a video artist, right? Everybody can go out and present TikTok or Instagram videos with, you know, rabbit ears and all of this sort of stuff. But 
what it hasn't really impacted yet, the artists, you know, professional artists really trying to make a statement out of this gear. And AI, I think, well, I hope, will enable an entirely new interaction with the audience. So a lot of the art that we have at the moment is broadcast. So it's, uh, and I don't, sorry, I don't mean that as a verb. I mean that as a noun, right? So most of the art that we have at the moment, you paint one painting and everybody comes past and sees the same painting. Or, you know, you record one song and everybody hears the same song. One of the things that machine learning might enable is for is art to interact with the audience individually. For instance, it might enable art that is based on you know measuring the world right now, measuring what's happening on Twitter or measuring you know what the what's happening in the news and representing that dynamically rather than in this kind of broadcast static sense that we've been so used to. So I'm really hoping that what comes out of this is well, that we empower artists to say things that they couldn't say before, but also maybe in, as a side effect that we wind up with a more sophisticated debate in the society about the impact of these technologies. So at the moment, the debate is a bit bifurcated, right? We have the naysayers off complaining about how our privacy is being violated. And, you know, they're kind of a fraction of half a percent of the population. And 99.5% of the population are just signed up to Facebook and enjoying the benefits, probably without really doing enough analysis. And I hope that out of this process, that one of the side effects might be that the artists can join in this debate in a more sophisticated way so that we can have a better, more informed dialogue as a community about the impact of this technology and where it should go. Yeah, I think that's great. With every technological wave, there is actually an impact on the arts. Of course, I think about music in particular because it's like technology enables creativity in many ways. If the sort of what would Bach and Beethoven and Mozart do with the synthesizer is <laughs> always the big thing, you know, that unleash even more creativity. And you know what? We had an interview on the AI Today podcast with Taryn Southern about how she used AI to create an entire album. She produced it. She developed it. And she's not a professional musician. And it enabled all this creativity. And so, you know, tools that, you know, artificial intelligence that can help extract more creativity, not replace the human. We haven't solved the issues of, look, if computers can't figure, machines can't figure out how to get spoons out of drawers, they're not going to figure out how to compose poetry and music from whole cloth. That's just not going to happen. They're just going to do their best job to imitate and copy. You know, there's a lot of that out there. But I think that's a really interesting idea, applying this to art. And art is, is sort of a core human, you know, thing. It's one of the things we do. We create and we imagine and we take ideas and we synthesize them in unusual ways. And the use of technology to help us augment that and the use of this machine learning technology, which is all about identifying patterns and helping make these connections among large quantities of data, that's all particularly helpful. So we're interested to see how this all develops in the art space. Yeah, so I think it's a great opportunity. And there are things happening already. And people are, you know, there are a, a few artists that have really embraced the technology and are doing amazing things. And there's a spectrum of applications, right, from democratizing the artistic process a bit. So I'm very enthusiastic about getting tools into people's hands that enable them to make their own art. 
some people see that as you know diminishing the professional artist somehow my position is exactly the opposite i'm also really enthusiastic about helping professional artists to say new things like to express new ideas and you know i'm not asking that artists should stop expressing the ideas they're already doing right i'm just trying to give them tools that will enable them to do new things that they couldn't do before right the, this technology has enabled entrepreneurs and well computer scientists frankly to do a whole lot of things that they couldn't do before and i'm hoping that maybe we can bring the same power to artists but you know, i started out i must admit with this idea that all of the art had to show the hand of the artist so this that we weren't trying to replace humans and you know this idea of replacing humans or augmenting them is a strong kind of narrative in the field and i think that it's an important debate but that sometimes gets a bit emotional so i my position originally was and in, in most of the things that we do I, we're not trying to replace humans we're trying to make them more powerful trying to enable them to do things that they couldn't do before and you know achieve the things that they want to be able to achieve but in art i have moved on actually from my earlier position that everything had to be driven by a human to now i am kind of interested in what the ai has to say by itself because i think that it is a way of explaining to people how machine learning works so part of the problem we have in the debate that's going around is that people massively overestimate the capability of machine learning and you know machine learning is doing amazing things but it's also very hard for people outside the field to recognize what the limits of it are and that is partly visible in this paranoia about the singularity right if google have got a system that can ring up a restaurant and book me a table then surely our robot overlords are just around the corner but the truth is that that system that can ring up and you know book you a table at a restaurant or book you a haircut can't drive the car and you know it can't recognize a image of a goldfish and it it can't do all of you know, can't sort facebook posts and all of the other things that that individual machine learning systems can do what's happening is that people that technicians are going around and choosing the easy problems and it turns out that given where the technology is at at the moment booking a table at a restaurant is a relatively simple problem and you know driving a car turns out to be a much harder problem than a lot of people thought but is a problem that is getting chipped away at but nonetheless 99% of what humans actually do is still not achievable right so your cat is able to survive by itself right your cat can find stuff to eat it can find shelter it can find a mate in an unstructured unfamiliar environment it can you know run away from enemies it can distinguish between uh, food and foe and we are a long long way from having robots that are able to do that sort of thing so anyway sorry that's a bit of a long-winded explanation but i think that uh, the power of this uh, technology should really be applied in some of these places that are missing out and i think that currently ai is not being applied in art to the extent that it should be and that the debate would be a much sophisticated one perhaps if that part of the community were more engaged 
Yeah. Anton, this has been such a great podcast with you. And thank you so much for participating. Uh, You had very thoughtful answers. I wanted to wrap this up as a final note. What do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond? Yeah, I think that the future of AI is that we're going to keep chipping away at these problems that actually people think are easy and that I really actually think that people will get disappointed with it, right? That people will see it the same way they see electricity. So, you know, electricity really was a revolution and we all take it for granted now. It does, you know, it changed our lives, made us more productive and has become completely invisible. The future of AI, I'm afraid, is the same. All of us technologists are working away at this beautiful maths and, you know, fantastic capabilities. And the more we do it, the less visible it becomes. So, you know, all of that Facebook tech, you know, a lot of what of the machine learning that happens in Facebook is fantastic, right? There's really amazing people working there doing incredible things and everybody just takes it for granted. The driverless cars are getting better and better, and the better they get, the more people take it for granted. I think it's a fantastic problem to have, but the future, I'm afraid, for AI is really that it becomes ubiquitous to the point where people are amazed when it's not there. In Australia, we have a challenge that there's not enough recognition, really, of the business value of this technology. There are a whole bunch of businesses that are sitting on amazing pools of data that is incredibly valuable that they could turn into you know, fantastic business value, but they haven't really figured out that they have this unbelievable resource at their fingertips. And the difference between the companies that make it and the companies that don't, as far as I'm concerned, will be how well they realize the value of that data. So, you know, I talk to people in business about the Uber transition. So Uber came into Australia, and I assume it was much the same everywhere else. They took over an industry that really wasn't functioning very well, but that nobody realized wasn't functioning very well, and used analytics to completely revolutionize the way that we do personal transport. And nobody wants to go back to the pre-Uber times. And the key to that transition was that they realized, Uber realized the value in their data. They made a global marketplace that didn't exist before. And the businesses that they replaced thought that they were invulnerable, right? The people who owned taxi plates thought that they were legislated in, that they were paying for taxi plates to the government and so that privilege was protected. And nonetheless, they got disrupted. And I think that change can be seen all over the place, but we still wind up having the same conversation with businesses over and over again. They come to us looking for a 10% improvement to their widget. You know, I'm a widget maker. I can see that AI is coming. I thus want to make a 10% improvement to my widget by using your magic technology, which is the wrong question. The right question is, I've got this data source that I've been sitting on because I'm incumbent in this industry. I can capture more value. I can capture more data and then I can use that. You know, how can I use that data to take on a new market, to take my business globally? And how can I drive value out of that, out of 
the position I'm in already. Unfortunately, the companies uh, that don't have that mindset, I think, will just get left behind. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I think that actually the US is doing better at that than Australia is. And that's part of the reason that we see so many of these global companies like Uber coming out of the US. But it's the same conversation everywhere. And, you know, that's my position on the future of business is that we will be We'll see more and more of these markets that feel that they're invulnerable taken over by companies that have recognized the value in the data and how they can use it to disrupt. Perfect. Well, that's kind of what we see as well. I mean, you know, AI is a transformative technology and as it continues to transform, entire industries will change. And as things happen in the, in the world, as they happen today, it'll motivate even more big changes. So really wanted to thank you so much for joining us on the AI Today podcast. You were fantastic. Actually, one of our longer interviews. So we went into some real detail here. I think our, our audience will find this really helpful. They're always hungry to hear things. So for those of you on the commute, this was good for the longer commute. For those of you that are still at home, this is for your lunch break. So or your dinner break or your morning coffee. So we really enjoyed having you as a guest and we hope our listeners found out a lot by listening to you, Anton. So thank you again for joining us here on the podcast. No, thank you guys. A lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, including a link to the Murmur Project. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.